Welcome back to the Obi Gyno Wino podcast. I hope you've been enjoying the reboot. It is so interesting to revisit the guidelines. You know, when I first, gosh, when I guess I initially studied these things and took all of the notes when I used to do this back in 2019, 2020, before I kind of rebranded everything to the holistic OBGYN, which by the way, you can still find that. That podcast is going to be here forever. And this one hopefully as well. But um, I wanted to have more conversations when I was doing that. And now that I've gone back into the into the practice guidelines, it's like, man, OBGYNs are responsible to know so much. I mean, really, any women's health practitioner, there is so much to know. And the topic today, which is Practice Bulletin 228, is um, all about fibroids, management of symptomatic uterine leiomyomas. Leiomyoma is a fancy word for fibroid. This one was published in June 2021. It's just a, a tremendously important that we understand some of this because it is fibroids are so common so common so we're going to get into that um it's about a 70 percent risk of developing fibroids during the reproductive years which is insane it's insane so this is a really important one we are um there's only so much we can really do in getting into the details of some of these things. Like if you aren't familiar with hysteroscopy, I recommend going to YouTube and checking out what that means. It's basically going into the uterine cavity with a little telescope and there are little instruments that we can, uh, that we can feed into the, through the scope into the cavity to remove polyps. And uh, there's even a device that lets us um, kind of Pac-Man style munch away at fibroids that are inside the cavity. Um, if you're not familiar with that, just, you know, you have to spend some time on YouTube really familiarizing yourself if you're going to be counseling women about the options, the various options to manage their fibroids. But we're going to get into, you know, medications, we're going to get into surgery and all this other stuff. So there are, uh, there's a lot here. So let's start with our, the wine <laughs> that we pair with every episode. This episode, um, goes really down very beautifully with the 2020 Paso Robles Merlot from the Magistrate. If you have any doubts on how to buy wine, look for a bottle that generally costs like the MSRP is 15 to $20, but it's on sale for like 10 to 15. That's, that's like the sweet spot. You know, there is good, there are good wines that are 25, 30, 50 bucks. But if you did a blind taste test, I'm pretty certain we wouldn't see a statistical significance um, a difference between, you know, what people thought was expensive versus cheap wine. No, cheap red blends and whatnot. I try to not focus on those in this, in these, uh, in these practice bulletins on these episodes, but, um, there is such a thing as bad wine, right? Especially if it has a bunch of artificial food dyes and all sorts of nitrites and all kinds of things, but or nitrates, whatever it is. Um, by the way, if you find a red wine gives you headaches, add some hydrogen peroxide. Little trick. It'll take the uh, some of the tannins and the the nitrites. It'll it'll resolve those so that you don't get the headache the next day. But anywho, five pearls. Number one, fibroids are super common and they're the most common indication for hysterectomy. Two, before you jump to surgery, consider more more conservative options, and there are a ton of them. 
including yoni steaming. Yoni steaming, we'll talk about that in this episode. Number three, use add-back therapy if you put your patient on a GnRH agonist for longer than six months. Add-back therapy is in the form of estrogen and progesterone. In this case, generally, it's going to be in synthetic form. You could use bioidenticals. I don't see why not. Number four, hysterectomy is the gold standard for treatment of fibroids. And number five, less invasive uh, approaches show great... um, are great options for management of symptoms when a patient or a client wishes to keep their uterus. And there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. And we'll get into that. So let's first cover some background. We've said this is the most common symptomatic solid tumor in women. They're also the most common indication for hysterectomy. And hysterectomy is the only definitive treatment. If you have no uterus, you've got no fibroids. And if you've got no fibroids, you can't have those symptoms. Right? And we're not talking about just bleeding. We're also talking about bulk symptoms. Again, we'll get into that. And many women nowadays are seeking alternatives because they want to keep on, you know, keep a hold of their uterus. Why wouldn't they? There was a, a patient that I was, um, I was covering a practice in Southern California before I moved to Kentucky. And this woman was going to have her a tubal sterilization procedure. And the doctor had consented her to you know, using language that maybe reflected that a piece of the tube would be removed or the tubes would be tied. That's what we used to do. And, um, and so I did the procedure and I removed the tubes, which is the standard of care now because you decrease the lifetime risk of ovarian cancer when you remove the, the tubes in their fimbriae. And she was really, really upset after that because she didn't realize that we were going to take out parts that couldn't ever be put back. And so that was something. That was something that I really learned from. Um, again, I hadn't consented her. I hadn't worked her up. I was just covering the surgery, and I, was, I did what was the standard of care based on what was recommended and what the patient had agreed to. But I don't think that maybe enough emphasis is put on the reality that when you have a part of your body removed, it, there is something energetically that changes there. So I think it's really important that we realize that women are not just signing up left and right for hysterectomies any longer. In case you're wondering, these fibroids, they're these very hard balls. Imagine like a rubber ball that's embedded in the wall of the uterus. They're comprised of smooth muscle and fibroblasts. Fibroblasts are effectively cells that produce connective tissue. I think the next thing to talk about is that there is a a subclassification system for fibroids. So if we go back to the FIGO um, sort of categorization of abnormal uterine bleeding, that's the palm coin, polyps, adenomyosis, lyomyoma, malignancy, and hyperplasia, um, coagulopathy, ovulatory dysfunction, endometrial issues, iatrogenic causes, or not otherwise specified. That's the palm coin classification of abnormal uterine bleeding. And then when we look at that L, the lyomyoma category, there are only a couple types of fibroids that are going to cause abnormal uterine bleeding. That's specifically those that have some contact or involvement of the endometrium, largely the zero, type zero, type one, and type two. Type two is that greater than 50% of the fibroid is inside the wall of the uterus, but there's a little piece of it sticking out. The type three don't always cause bleeding, even though the type 3 actually contact the endometrium, but they're 100% intramural, meaning inside the wall. So there's no real involvement of the endometrium. And then the, the higher stages, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, those are all 
not involving the endometrium. So you could get bulk symptoms from those, but you're not going to get abnormal uterine bleeding from those. Um, there are also some hybrid types like type 2-5, which is a large fibroid that contacts the mucosa and the serosa, the mucosa being the endometrium and the serosa being the outer sort of um, layer uh, around, the, around the uterus. So this is important because not every fibroid is going to cause the same um, issues, right? And the submucosal, the ones that tend to lead to bleeding, are also those that are most likely to impact fertility. Although any type of fibroid technically um, can, can impact fertility because it, it reflects that there's a disruption in how the architecture of the uterus is laying down tissue. So the risk of women developing this, any woman, is about 70% during their reproductive years. That's probably an underestimate because only 25% of women who have fibroids become sufficiently symptomatic that they seek out intervention. Some of the risk factors are premenopausal state, right? Remember, you can develop fibroids during any of those years, I mean, roughly age, what, 14, 15 until 45 to 50. Um, at some point, you can develop fibroids during those years. And if you're premenopausal, that is a risk factor. If you're postmenopausal, I'm not all that suspicious of fibroids. A family history is a risk factor, increasing interval since last birth, hypertension, and obesity. There are a couple factors that decrease your risk, and that is higher parity, meaning the more time you spend during your reproductive years pregnant, the lesser chance that you're going to be diagnosed or recommended intervention for fibroids. Um, if you've used oral hormonal contraceptives or depomedroxyprogesterone acetate, the DMPA, that's the one type of birth uh, contraception that gets injected into your shoulder muscle. For any duration, COCs or um, depomedroxyprogesterone, uh, those will decrease your risk of fibroids. Black women have, like with many things, have a two to three times higher risk of developing fibroids in their lifetime compared to white women. They also t t tend to um, present with their symptoms at an earlier age, and they tend to have larger uteri at time of diagnosis, which should, you know, it, it's not that these things necessarily grow faster in black women, although maybe that's true. I think it's more likely that a lot of black women don't seek out care from OBGYNs because of systemic racism, um, you know, historical mistreatment of women of color by our conventional medical system. And so I do think that that's important is that if we have women of color under our care, that we're very, very, um, <laughs> that we are, that we acknowledge that, that they, that the fact that they're a woman of color predisposes them, um, to developing fibroids and getting them in sooner rather than later can help to shift those numbers back to the mean. All right. The workup for fibroids is key. So they're generally discovered as a consequence of heavy periods. That's that AUBL that we talked about from the FIGO classification or fertility issues. Um, I think the first thing to consider is that if there are big fibroids, the uterus is going to feel, you're going to be able to palpate the uterus outside of pregnancy. You really can't reliably feel the uterus like on a deep bimanual exam with one hand in the vagina pressing upwards on the cervix and another hand right above the pelvic the pubic bone you can sometimes feel it but if you can obviously feel it there's definitely something in there that has made the, the uterus large it could be adenomyosis but more commonly it's fibroids um 
apart from bleeding, women can present with bulk symptoms. We've talked about this a little bit. That's whenever the fibroid is, or the, let's say the fibroid uterus, because you generally don't have just one fibroid. There's usually multiple. This enlarged uterus, or even the fibroids, maybe they're pedunculated, like one of those type sevens that's hanging off the serosa. And you can feel it. It's like a doorknob attached to the uterus. It can press on the bladder, causing urinary symptoms, the rectum causing rectal symptoms. Um, it can press on other viscera. So it can be pretty uncomfortable. And that visceral pain, when a fibroid's pressing on the peritoneal, the wall of the peritoneal cavity, can be very uncomfortable. So start with a very careful history and consider all of the risk factors. And then I think it's always prudent to start with a transvaginal ultrasound. And when you're looking with the transvaginal ultrasound, you'll see you know, what a uterus looks like on sagittal, a sagittal section, is it looks like a papaya that's been split down the center. And all of the insides, the seeds and the pulp of the papaya, that's what you're going to see is like the uterine lining. Um, sometimes there might be fluid collected in there. Sometimes there might be a, a distorted uterine lining. That's all a sign that perhaps maybe there's something there impressing upon or involving the endometrium that can lead to bleeding. Again, types 0, 1, 2, and the 2, 5, the big fibroids that are in contact with both the endometrium and the serosa. You can see those generally very, very clearly in, on transvaginal ultrasound. Smaller fibroids, especially those that are completely in the cavity, cavity, like the types 0 especially, but also types 1 and sometimes types 2, are best visualized with a special type of ultrasound during which, you know, we, it's the same process, but we put this little catheter into the uterus and we infuse a bunch of saline in there. And that's called a saline infusion sonogram. That will distend the uterine cavity and make it clear if there's a polyp in there, if there's a fibroid in there. Sometimes you can't really tell between a polyp and a fibroid, but it tells you that there's some lesion inside the cavity. Polyps, by the way, present generally with bleeding between periods. Fibroids generally present with heavy periods, but you can have both at the same time. If you were to go to the, the route of hysteroscopy, that's when we take a, a little telescope and put it right inside the cavity to look at it directly. You can actually see the ostea from the, where the fallopian tubes attach to the bilateral cornua of the uterus. Um, if you go in there, you can actually see directly what you're looking at. And you can generally, when you get good at this, you can, you can definitely determine whether it's a polyp, whether it's a fibroid, what type of fibroid it is. If the cavity looks completely clear, then it's unlikely that fibroids are related to the bleeding. But you just never know. While you're in there, you can collect a biopsy, you can do all kinds of stuff. So it's actually a really, really nice um, uh, approach that has a diagnostic as well as a therapeutic angle if a person has a really simple lesion that can be removed really easily through hysteroscopy. I've included some images of what this looks like. Um, the ultrasound that shows a fibroid, the relationship to the other organs. This is all in transvaginal ultrasound. Um, and then also what it might look like if you were to see a fibroid inside the cavity. So I've just linked all of that there. Now, before you go further to the surgical stuff, you can get an MRI to help with surgical planning. We'll be talking about the different surgeries. An MRI can really determine what type of fibroid, based on the FIGO classification, what type of fibroid are we looking at? So when we get into the management considerations, I think it's important to remember that fibroids can impact fertility. It can cause abnormal um, heavy periods, especially, again, if it's a submucosal. Same goes for fertility. And an enlarged uterus can cause bulk symptoms. So keep all of that in mind because the various management options, which, can, you know, which include expected management, uh, that is doing nothing, um, 
you know, that can be a consideration, especially if these fibers aren't causing any issues. So are they causing issues first off? And if they are, okay, what, what can we do? NSAIDs are one option. The evidence is not great for that. Acupuncture and herbal pressure, uh, preparations, very reasonable to consider these as conservative um, options, but the evidence is weak, as it always is with acupuncture, Chinese medicine, herbal medicine, etc. When we say the evidence is weak, I put air quotes around that because just because it's not published doesn't mean it doesn't work. And there's a variety of modalities out there that we know do work, including yoni steaming, which is another consideration. There's been no great evidence published. But damn, if it doesn't work. I've used it for a ton of a ton of clients. And sometimes fibroid tissue just is like falling out of the uterus during periods, which is pretty amazing. Steamychick.com is the definitive resource for that. Um, I've done some interviews with Kelly as well. So you might want to check those out on the holistic OBGYN, Kelly Garza, the steamy chick. Hormonal therapies are an option. And then surgical options, um, procedural options, embolization are also on the list. So the, the big questions that you should ask um, and, and counsel your client through are, do you want to have more kids? You can't have more kids if you have a uterus. And it's hard to get pregnant if you have you know, big submucosal fibroids, for example. So that's a question. How bad are the symptoms? Are you okay with losing your uterus? Or do you feel okay lose, you know, leaving it and just going on without it? Um, what's your overall health? Because some of these surgical options might not be a great option. I mean, the risks there might be quite high. Um, but then the benefits might be really great as well. So we have to take your overall health and some of your comorbidities, things like hypertension, how are your kidneys working, how does your liver work? Those are all relevant not only to the surgery itself, but also to how you respond to anesthesia. Would you prefer an office procedure or operating room? You know, a lot of these procedures are ambulatory, meaning you go in, you get it done, and you go home the same day. Or you go in the office, and they just do it with local anesthesia. Um, hysteroscopy, for example, can be done in the office. It's way cheaper. It's way easier for you. There's way less anesthetics, you know, systemic agents used. Would that be a good option for you? I've heard it's uncomfortable, but I've heard it's not a lot of women have said it, it was just fine because there's a lot of different local anesthetics that we can use. And then are you close to menopause? What if we don't do anything we expectantly manage for a few years and then you go into menopause? The uterus shrinks, the fibroids shrink, all of that when you're truly in menopause. The bottom line here is you may not need surgery. So let's start by, um, you know, granted, I can, I'm only really presenting what's here in the practice bulletin. Yoni steaming is a, is a <laughs> really, really cheap and um, kind of a beautiful consideration if you're going through any of these things. But the practice bulletin, of course, isn't going to go into that or Chinese medicine or herbalism or anything in depth. But they do go over the medical options. So let's start there. The LNG IUDs, that's levonorgestrel intrauterine devices. This is the first option. This, these work by thinning out the endometrium, making it atrophic. The Mirena, the 52 milligram version, is the best studied. It's, it's, a, it's important to note that placing an IUD is not going to help with the bulk symptoms. It's not going to shrink the uterus down. So if you're having just bleeding, heavy bleeding, this could be an option. But is there a giant fibroid distorting the cavity so that the, the IUD can't be placed appropriately? Like all important considerations. And your, your doctor, your nurse practitioner, whoever, should be covering that. When women use this approach, 40% achieve men amenorrhea by 12 months. That's pretty stellar. 95% of women who have anemia at the time of placement also experience resolution. So this could be a very, very reasonable option if you're not looking to do surgery or 
any of these other things that we're going to talk about. Stepping up from that, we end up in the GnRH agonist category with ADBAC therapy. So, you know, medications, um, I think uh, Elagolix is a really common option here. Um, Lupron is an option here. The way that these work, and they can be used for up to two years, right? So if this is just bridging you to menopause, maybe this is a great option. They work by suppressing the release of gonadotropins from the brain, and that suppresses the release of sex hormones from the ovaries. So basically you go into iatrogenic menopause here. An example of how to treat, you know, of how this would work is you take a Lagolix 300 milligrams twice a day with add back therapy daily. Um, and that can be 0.625 to 1 milligram of estradiol. Again, that's a synthetic estrogen plus 0.5 to 5 milligrams of norethindrone north acetate, which is a synthetic progesterone, also known as a progestin. If you don't add, uh, provide add back therapy, hot flashes, changes to bone mineral density, um, increased lipids are all likely because you need your ovaries. The ovary is an important part of a woman's overall health and vitality. So when you put a person into a state of hypoestrogenism, all these other things can pop up, and that might actually be a significant detractor from quality of life. Using this method, unlike the IUDs, you will potentially see a shrinking of the uterus to help with bulk symptoms, so that's, that's something. And um, the symptoms of, you know, the sort of downsides to this will resolve within three to nine months after stopping therapy. Thank you, honey. My wife just brought me a smoothie from the smoothie bar. So this is um, the way that this can also be used as a bridge to surgery. So let's say that you go in, you've, you've had heavy periods for years, now your hemoglobin's low, um, you've got this big honking you know, uterus, surgery is going to be a lot harder. But what if we gave you you know, a GnRH agonist with ADBAC therapy for, let's say, I don't know, three to six months before your surgery? You might see a boost in the hemoglobin and a reduction in the size of the fibroids, making the surgery easier and making you a little bit healthier with a little bit more reserve before the surgery. That's why they might be offering that. So birth control, COCs, combined oral contraceptives, and progesterone therapy. This is not ADBAC therapy. This is We're using these as the primary modality. Data is very limited on this for this indication. The COCs seem to be a good option. That's the pill but not as good as the Mirena, the LNG IUD. And there's uh, little data on DMPA, that's the depomedroxyprogesterone acetate and other progesterone therapies as the sole therapy that you're using for this. So little data on that. Tranexamic acid, this is a medication that helps to prevent fibrin degradation. Um, fibrin's imp important to help build big sturdy clots. Tranexamic acid has been best studied in heavy bleeding, but limited evidence for AUBL specifically. Having said that, it's probably reasonable to consider because it works for a variety of other um, heavy bleeding uh, etiologies. Selective progesterone receptor uh, modulators. This is not recommended and not FDA approved for management of fibroids. Um, what we're talking about here is things like Lipristol, also known as Plan, plan B. <clears throat> Excuse me. It is used for, for this purpose outside of the U.S., but now that we have data uh, due to its use in other countries, we're finding that in its higher doses for longer-term treatment, it can be have hepatotoxic. So we have to be careful. That's, that's liver toxic. All right, so that's the medications. There are some non-surgical procedures. 
I generally recommend avoiding surgery whenever possible because um, surgeries carry risks. Procedures also carry risks. Um, and, you know, medical options also carry risk of side effects. So there are risks with all these things, but as we've, we're kind of moving through these options, the risks get greater. So we have to balance the benefits and risks no matter what we do in life, especially if we're counseling our clients or if you listening are a patient that's really, really thoughtful about what the best option is for you. So the first of these procedures is something I've seen done many, many times, uterine artery embolization, a UAE. The way that this is done is you go to the cath lab and the uh, interventional radiologists will put you under a sedation. They'll make an incision in your groin and run a catheter up in order to embolize the uterine vessels on either side. So they put this embolizing agent in. Over time, it probably will degrade, but it blocks off blood flow to through the uterine vessels. That doesn't mean your uterus is not getting blood flow because there's also some blood flowing through the ovarian vessels that anastomose with the climbing uterine vessels up the side of the uterus, but we're blocking off a giant chunk of the blood supply to the uterus and therefore the fibroids. So you can expect a reduction in the size of fibroids and the uterus, as well as a, d a decrease in your bleeding for up to five years after the embolization. Maybe longer, but that's what our data shows. When you compare patient satisfaction of UAE with hysterectomy and myomectomy medication, well, let's just stick with hysterectomy myomectomy because that's the best one that's studied. There's been a similar patient satisfaction. So within um, the, the next big question is, what's the likelihood I'm going to need another procedure? Very good question. So within two to five years of UAE, 20 to 40% of women require some other intervention, including hysterectomy, myomectomy, medication, or ablation. And we'll talk about those options here coming up. There is a um, two to times greater likelihood of needing reintervention compared to hysterectomy or myomectomy. So that's, that's significant. The good news is that UAE carries a lower risk of requiring blood transfusion compared to surgical interventions because you're not losing extra blood in the surgery. The UAE is pretty much bloodless. There's no additional blood loss there. Now, granted, there are some complications that can come, like puncturing a vessel and, and those types of things, but those are rare. In fact, 1 to 12% of UAE cases are associated with major complications, meaning we have to do a stat like unplanned hysterectomy, because maybe we've blown out one of the uterine vessels accidentally. It's unlikely, but it can happen. Rehospitalization is also considered a major complication, pulmonary embolism, or ovarian failure, meaning we've cut off so much blood flow to the uterus that the ovarian blood supply is actually compromised. Up to 60% of UAE cases are associated with minor complications. This includes something called post-embolization syndrome, which presents generally as a, a triad of pain, fever, and nausea can present with um, other minor complications include vaginal discharge or even pelvic infection. The pros of doing a UAE, yes, there are risks. The pros are it's a same-day procedure, does not generally require hospitalization. But when we compare this to some of our more surgical options, there's a 2.5 to 2.7 times greater risk of unscheduled follow-up visit need or readmission to the hospital. If that's not a downside enough, there are some other cons. Compared to expectant management, UAE is associated with decreased fertility. So we've blocked off blood flow to the uterus. Is the uterus now going to be able to carry a baby? Turns out that you have a lesser chance of getting pregnant, carrying to term. There's an increased risk of miscarriage of 35%. 
over a baseline of 16%, C-section 66% versus 48%. So this tells us that there might be some interruption in the blood flow to the future uteroplacental unit if you were to get pregnant. There's also a greater risk of postpartum hemorrhage, 14% versus 2.5%. So all things to be considered, especially if you desire future um, you know, children in the, past, in, in the future. Most people who undergo a UAE are not going to have more kids. That's already been a sort of a predetermined part of the counseling um, because the effects will take, you know, they last at least five years, if not more. So you might end up with a subfertility pattern for the rest of your life, your reproductive years, I should say, if you undergo UAE versus, you know, a myomectomy or some of these other options. All right, the next procedure is something called radiofrequency ablation. This is a focused coagulation of the fibroid or fibroids induced by oscillating and alternating um, electric current or voltage um, or of a magnetic electrical or electromagnetic field. Um, or, you get there, or it could just be this whole mechanical system that vibrates within a frequency range from about 20 kilohertz to around 300 gigahertz. And that vibration causes tissues to heat up to cells to lice and the tissue to become necrotic and coagulate, which can lead to a variety of benefits. This can be done laparoscopically, transvaginally, or transcervically. It's likely a good option, um, and risk seems to be low, but the availability of this technology is very limited right now. Same could be said for focused ultrasound, which is when we use high-frequency ultrasound to coagulate fibroids. Um, it's likely a good option, but there's limited data. Endometrial ablation, also likely good option, but limited data. I have personally found that ablation works really, really well. The issue is that you need to be um, screened ahead of time for endometrial cancer. And the chances of getting pregnant and carrying a baby to term after an ablation are almost zero. So you have to be very, very thoughtful about that. So let's now move on to the surgical options. We're rounding home plate here, guys, so thanks for sticking with me. Surgery. If we can avoid surgery, we should, but if you're done having kids, if you're in reasonably good health, if you're still a long way from menopause, uh, if your symptoms are terrible, there's a lot of good options here to consider. The first, of course, is um, myomectomy. Before we get into that, though, all of these options, almost all of these options, are going to have an open option versus a laparoscopic option, and laparoscopic surgery can be done by me holding, you know, instruments or through me controlling a little panel. Well, not me. I don't, I don't use robots, but a robot-assisted laparoscopic procedure is a little bit more precise, takes a little bit longer. We'll talk about that in a second. But the point here is that smaller, fewer incisions is always going to be better for you when possible. And so just consider that whenever you're considering, do I have a bigger incision on my belly or do I go the laparoscopic route? You also need to consider that, albeit rare, sometimes fibroids contain cancer. So many, many GYN surgeons will have to either use A, a larger incision, or B, a technique whereby the fibroids can be morselated before removal from a small incision. And there is a concern that was, that was brought up about 15 years ago that there might be cancer hidden somewhere in the fibroids. And this is rare. But if we were to morselate, like chew, morselate means to basically chew it up into smaller pieces that can be taken out through smaller incisions. If we were to do that, could we inadvertently seed the peritoneal cavity with uterine cancer if there's some cancer living in that fibroid? These are generally considered benign tumors, but sometimes there is cancer there. So 
There's a committee opinion 822, uterine morselation for presumed leiomyomas that you should check out. Um, we'll cover that in a future episode. But the, the bottom line is that ACOG recommends universally morselating inside of a bag inside the abdomen to, inv- to avoid this type of seeding with you know, in, uh, cancer cells that are hidden within the otherwise benign tissue. It's also to consider before surgery to support anemia. If you're profoundly anemic before surgery, that should be bumped up, and it can be done with a GnRH agonist, which can make the tumors smaller, the fibroids smaller, make the uterus a little bit smaller, can even make it possible to get the uterus entirely out through the vagina through what's called a vaginal hysterectomy um, without even doing any morselation if it shrinks sufficiently with this GnRH um, agonist support. And then anemia, hemoglobin, hematocrit can be bumped as well. ACOG does recommend iron supplementation, but honestly, I don't find that it's super helpful if we haven't done full iron studies in order to understand what the body needs to digest, absorb, and utilize iron. There's another practice bulletin. Um, it's 233 anemia in pregnancy. I covered it in an earlier episode here. It's in pregnancy, but the same principles apply, looking at ferritin, looking at total iron binding capacity, maybe even looking at a stool analysis to see if a person's able to absorb iron. Otherwise, you're just going to make them constipated by supplementing willy-nilly with iron. And uh, you can do a far better job with organ meats and oysters and bone broth and those types of things, but to each their own. All right, so the surgical options. Let's start with myomectomy. This is when we're going in and plucking out the fibroids and then sewing up the areas that we you know, the, the defects that we created by plucking them out of the uterine wall. There are open versus hysteroscopic versus laparoscopic approaches. Hysteroscopic is going to be potentially a same-day procedure. We go in with a little telescope, we chew up the parts of the fibroids that we can see inside the cavity, and we leave the cavity looking pristine. That's ideal. If you have a giant fibroid, a couple of giant fibroids, or if there's a ton of them, Doing an open procedure is going to probably be a little bit easier for your surgeons. We can do this laparoscopically, but Man, it takes a, some real skill to do a laparoscopic myomectomy when there's a bunch of big, giant fibroids hanging around all over the uterus. It, it impa- impairs our visualization, making it harder to do the surgery in general. So it's going to really depend on the skill of your surgeon if this can be done laparoscopically. There have been no major differences found in the risk of visceral injury, hospital readmi- readmission, etc., between open myomectomy and open abdominal hysterectomy for uteri that are less than 18 weeks. So if your uterus is less than 18 weeks, then um, this is a fair option. This is a fair option to do this. Um, Especially, you know, it's a big uterus. Let's just remove the whole thing. Well, hold on. If it's less than 18 weeks, there's no difference in outcomes if we just do a myomectomy and you want to keep your your uterus. Um, This procedure does seem to help with um, AUBL as well as fertility and bulk symptoms. So that's good. Sometimes we'll use an intraoperative injection of vasopressin, which causes a constriction of the blood vessels locally. This goes, you know, injected into the fibroid and around the fibroid. This can decrease the risk of blood loss during the procedure. And sometimes these can be bloody procedures, I have to say, um, as well as the need for transfusion. As I've already mentioned, removal of submucosal fibroids have a greater benefit to fertility than other types. And that can sometimes be really hard to do laparoscopically, right? So you may need a combined procedure. Maybe we go in with a hysteroscope and remove the intracavitary stuff, and then we go in laparoscopically or open to remove the other fibroids that are causing bulk symptoms. It just really depends on the clinical situation. And as I've mentioned, getting an MRI of the abdomen and pelvis ahead of time can help to plan what the best surgical approach is for you and your surgeon. 
So one important consideration here is even if we go in and remove every single fibroid that we can see, the risk of recurrence at 40 months is about 25% for all comers. Um, for individuals 45 or older, the recurrence rate at 36 months was 17% with a 3% need for hysterectomy. So even if you're a little bit older, we have to consider these are going to probably come back, which is why so many women do you know, tend to steer towards the hysterectomy approach right from the start. I'm done with, I'm done with having kids. I don't need my uterus. Hysterectomy is the way to go. And we OBGYNs do a lot of hysterectomies. So, the, um, so I mentioned the re reoccurrence rate at 40 months is 25%, but the reintervention rate at 60 months is 12%. So that means that even though they come back, maybe you don't develop the same symptoms. So this is all really, this makes decision-making a little bit hard, right? Hysteroscopic approach, I've mentioned this, the reintervention rate for type 1, uh, 0, 1, and 2 fibroids that are removed by hysteroscopic um, surgery have a reintervention rate of less than 10% after six, after 60 months. So it's pretty pretty decent option for most people, especially if your primary issue is bleeding or fertility and those types of fibroids. These submucosal fibroids are big contributors. We also have open versus laparoscopic considerations. The laparoscopic approaches tend to um, be associated with a faster recovery, meaning return to work and return to daily activities. I think that's important because, um, well, it, the reason for this is that you have tiny incisions versus a big like C-section-like incision or even a vertical incision, you know, all the way up and down your belly. There's the same risk of recurrence regardless of the approach. Right, and what we're talking about here again is an open procedure with a big surgery versus smaller incisions with laparoscopy, and the risk of recurrence is the same. Um, no difference in complication rates according to the available literature. Open procedures do tend to be a little bit bloodier, and of the laparoscopic oceans, uh, <laughs> options, the robotics procedures tend to to be way longer because it takes so much time to just set up the robot and get. There's about five incisions. Um, but otherwise, the outcomes are equivalent. So the, it's also important to, to note that like, if a surgeon says, I want to do a myomectomy laparoscopically, and then they get in there, and they may be like, shit, all those reasons I mentioned, I can't see what I need to see. We're going to have to convert to an open procedure. So they started with laparoscopic incisions. They say, we got to switch to an open surgery. They pull all the laparoscopic equipment out, turn on the overhead lights, and now they're doing an open surgery in an open abdominal cavity which requires the bigger incision, the longer recovery time, etc. When a laparoscopic surgery is started as a robotic-assisted laparoscopic surgery, um, the risk of converting to the open procedure is less than a traditional laparoscopic approach. Sorry, I had to think about how to get those words out so I didn't confuse anybody. And then last but not least, hysterectomy. This is the gold standard. You can't bleed if you don't have a uterus and you have zero chance of recurrence. So from those metrics, thumbs up, right? If a hysterectomy is performed and you are well before menopause, it's best to keep the ovaries in place. Um, you need your ovaries. Ovaries do provide you quite a bit of longevity and vitality. If the uterus has to come out or you choose to have it out, a vaginal approach is... is going to lead to a better quality of life and faster return to normal activities when compared to the abdominal approach. An abdominal approach, again, is a big incision. We take the uterus out, we close up your incision, and you're off, you know, you're, you're back home. It's going to be a while to recover from that. The vaginal approach, we don't make any abdominal incision. Sometimes we do put a little camera in, 
um, or maybe two little laparoscopic incisions to assist with a vaginal um, hysterectomy. But what we do here with a vaginal hysterectomy is we remove the cervix and the uterus completely intact, ideally. You can do some like lashing procedures and and, cert and you know use your scalpel to, to decrease the diameter of the uterus, and sometimes that's required if you have a big fibroid uterus. But it all comes out through the vagina, and then we close up the back of the vagina. Does not impact sex or anything, although if you have a vaginal hysterectomy, you have to lose your cervix. An abdominal approach or laparoscopic approach, you can keep your cervix. And there are a ton of nerve endings in the cervix. The data per ACOG has not supported that you have any decreased ability to orgasm or sexual gratification or anything without your cervix. But I beg to differ. I think that there's a lot more for us to explore as um, with relation to the cervix as a uh, an erogenous zone and a center of our orgasmic experience. But, you know, I'm just the holistic OB-GYN, right? <laughs> I'm not the one doing these surgeries, but a lot of women who I've met who've had that happen do feel like they didn't have as good of, as much pleasure whenever they were either masturbating or even with a, with a penetrative partner. So it is what it is. So it should still be a part of the, of the conversation. So the vaginal approach is the best from the standpoint of blood loss and recovery and the speediness of the operation. Laparoscopic is best. Abdominal is probably the worst. But you are an individual person. Your client is an individual person. We have to support them through risks and benefits and alternatives. Um, consider the size of the uterus. Where are the fibroids? What's her parity? That can actually be re relevant to whether you take a vaginal approach. There's a variety of other factors. So, um, so that's that. That's what we do for fibroids, guys. And um, I just really, really recommend you read and consider all of these factors when we're starting to talk to our family, our clients, our colleagues about what do we do for this poor woman who's here with abnormal uterine bleeding or fertility issues or whatever. I feel like conserving tissue is probably the sign of a great surgeon, meaning the surgeon who does the least surgery is probably the best surgeon. Um, usually they don't get there easily. They have to do years and years and years of surgery before they realize, what the hell am I doing here? I've got to change something up. So I hope you enjoyed this, guys. We'll be back next week with another edition of the ob Gyno Wino podcast and um, another great topic. In the meantime, do no harm, take no shit. And if you need to find me, belovedholistics.com is my website. I've got some new courses out, clear and free. Your Holistic Solution to Persistent HPV is a blockbuster, as well as the Born Free Method for all of the pregnancy and postpartum education and support you need, whether you're pregnant or you're a birth worker. Find everything at belovedholistics.com or the bornfreemethod.com uh, born is the other website for both of the courses. And I'm on Instagram at NathanRileyOBGYN. I also support midwives across the country if you need that support as a collaborative physician, whether it's consultation or medications or orders of any kind. Find me, belovedholistics.com. I'll see you guys next time. Have a great week. Enjoy the last warm days of the year because winter is coming, Jon Snow. Bye. I love you. <laughs>